Thank Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Clark, and a very warm welcome to Brooklands this evening. Thank you for being here, and thank you for ever, as ever, supporting the Trust. We decided to call the Napier Room the Moon Room tonight, for obviously good reasons. Um, I hope you're impressed that I still managed to get him into my 1969 suit. <laughs> it was pretty big when I bought it, now I know the reason. Um, I just want to remind you, really, that let your mind go free, all those that you were around in 1969, and try and wind that clock back and remember where you were. It was 2.30 in the morning, so most of you were probably asleep, or your father got you out of bed and uh, forced you to watch a very grainy black and white TV. 20 years ago, I had the great pleasure to meet Buzz Aldrin in the States at a sales conference, but tonight... We've got Harry Sherrard. And he's going to blast us off to start with to talk about the Apollo 11 story. So please welcome your Capcom for this evening, Harry Sherrard. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everybody, very much indeed for coming along for my talk on uh, the Apollo moon landings, um, subject that I've been captivated by since I was a small boy. I've been a bit of a, a space nut um, all my life, really. There's been lots of documentaries on because it's the uh, 50th anniversary and so forth, so I'm assuming you've all seen some of those, uh, and they all fall into a little bit of a pattern, I think. So I'm going to approach things a little bit differently tonight, going to look at some of the technology that was required to go to the moon in a bit more detail, um, which I think is often um, glossed over in the, uh, in the uh, uh, documentaries. And we'll also look a little bit at some of the other Apollo missions. So the space race began in October 1957 with this. This is an R-7 Soviet intercontinental ballistic missile, which they converted and turned into a space rocket and sent the first artificial satellite uh, into orbit. And it's almost impossible to exaggerate the effect that that had on the United States, the government and the people. They thought that Russia was basically a country of peasants uh, and the idea that Russia had turned science fiction into science fact um, absolutely um, stunned America. So in response they got a bit of a satellite program going but they were behind of course. Um, and then in uh, September 1959, now some of you may look at that and think that's Sputnik. Um, actually it isn't, that's a, a later probe, that's called Luna 2. It's not often known that in one respect the, the Russians actually got to the moon before the Americans because in September 1959 this probe, Luna 2, was crashed onto the moon by uh, the Soviets. Deliberately crashed, obviously it's not designed for, for a soft landing. Um, so yeah, so they, the first man-made object ever to get to the moon uh, was in fact um, Russian. So in April 1961, things got even worse for America when the Russians put the first man into orbit, uh, Yuri um, Gagarin. By then, the Americans had a, a man and space program underway, but they were very well behind, and uh, something of a crisis unfolded. So people looked um, to the president, uh, to Kennedy. He hadn't long been president when all this started to happen. And he, with some justification, blamed his predecessor, President Eisenhower. He didn't really get space, and it's probably a fair comment that he'd allowed America to uh, get behind in all of this. Now, the spotlight in all the documentaries always shines on uh, uh, Kennedy, because he made the, the speech. But this guy standing behind him, actually, is 
more important in the story, that's Lyndon Johnson. He was the vice president at the time, and then when Kennedy was shot in uh, 1963, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson then became uh, the, the president. And it was actually he who was the advocate for the space program, um, not so much Kennedy. So Johnson was tasked with Kennedy to resolve the crisis. So he, he got together with uh, NASA scientists and engineers and said, what, you know, what are we going to do? The Cold War is in full flow. It's incredibly important to us to take on the Russians. So what the engineers said was, look, well, we are years behind. So any kind of modest target in the near future, the Russians will get there first. What we have to do is to come up with this really ambitious target downstream. And we think our greater economic power and uh, technical expertise will uh, beat the Russians. So Johnson and these other guys came up with this plan to land a man on the moon before at the end of the decade. So Kennedy bought the idea, and it was he that articulated it in that famous speech, landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth before the end of the decade. That was in uh, May 1961. But as I said, Johnson was really uh, the man behind all of that. So how do you do it? How do you go to the moon? Um, well, in 1961, nobody had a clue how to go to the moon, apart from Tintin. <laughs> um, this is it. I've walked a few steps. The first time in the history of mankind there was an explorer on the moon, and you always thought it was Neil Armstrong. Now, obviously this is a comic strip representation, but it does actually reflect serious scientific thought at the time, called direct ascent. You simply built a big rocket like this, uh, you flew it to the moon, you turned it around, you fired that same engine, you landed on the moon, you fired that engine again, and that took you back to the Earth. Um, so it seemed, in some respects, um, relatively simple. Also completely impossible. Um, because what scientists and engineers worked out is this all-important four-to-one ratio. For every kilo you lift off the moon at the end of a mission, you need four kilos of thrust on launch. So if you've got some pretty large rocket like this on the moon and you reverse engineer that back to your launch on Earth, you have this absolutely unfeasibly large rocket that you've got to build. So you've got to try to bring um, the weight down. But also if you think about it, why would you do it this way? Why would you take the engine, the propellant for that engine, the heat shields, the parachutes, why would you take all that mass down to the moon and then lift it all back up again? There's no engineering reason to do that. So that was the thought process of this man, John Hubolt, uh, NASA engineer, Dr. John Hubolt. And he came up with what he described as LOR, uh, Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. And he advocated a modular approach. Instead of this great big rocket and great big uh, landing on the moon, you break it down into modules, the command module, the service module, and what he called the LEV, the Lunar Excursion Vehicle, later simply called the Lunar Module. And you can see everything here is about escape weights and all those graphs here, all these W's everywhere. Everything's all about weight. So this is how the plan um, developed. You've split the spacecraft down uh, into four different modules. So number one, the command module that the astronauts would go to and from the moon in. And number two, the uh, service module that carried the propellants and oxygen and so forth. The lunar module then is three and four together for descent and then four would be the ascent stage. It would use three, it would leave three on the moon, use that as a launch pad and go back up into orbit. So this is the, the mission plan. So that it would be launched by a large rocket from Earth, which I'll come back to later. Step two, the lunar module would then separate. Step three, the lunar module would descend to the lunar surface. Then step four, 
uh, after the mission is complete, the ascent stage would blast off, um, leaving the descent stage behind. And this aspect is also very important for, from a safety point of view because it gives you an abort option. Yeah? If you go down with just one module and you get into trouble, you get no abort. And as we'll see on Apollo 11, that potentially became quite relevant. So step five, the uh, ascent stage redox with the command module, and it's then discarded. And then uh, the rather important step six, um, you will head for home. So one astronaut stays in the command module and orbits the Earth. Two go down uh, to the lunar surface. Then the command module re-enters the Earth's atmosphere and three extremely brave men um, sit inside that metal canister that hits the Earth's atmosphere at 25,000 miles per hour. Um, the, the temperature that's created with the friction of the Earth's atmosphere is almost the temperature of the surface of the Sun. So that was a pretty, uh, pretty hairy ride. Assuming everything goes well, um, the parachutes open and you safely land uh, back on in, in the uh, Pacific Ocean. So that was the mission plan. So what technology, what structures do you need to make that work? Let's go back to this diagram. So first of all, in the command module, you need a restartable rocket engine. Now that didn't exist. Rocket engine would start, it would fire to depletion of fuel, and then it would stop. That's how rocket engines were. So NASA and their, their subcontractors, and when I say NASA, I do always mean there's a, a large body of engineering subcontractors working with them as well. They realized that well, you had to restart the engine to leave the Earth, start it again to be captured by the moon's gravity, and then, rather importantly again, number six, restart it to get back to Earth. So it didn't exist, so they invented it, and they created what, was, what became known as the J2 engine, absolutely crucial to the success of the lunar missions, and uh, it worked um, faultlessly. Stage three, that's even more difficult. You now need a throttleable rocket engine. Didn't exist. Even the J2 engine isn't throttleable. You can restart it, but when it starts and runs, it fires at full throttle. So you now need a variable thrust engine, rocket engine, that the astronauts can then fly down um, to the moon. And once again, the spirit of the age, it didn't exist, so we'll invent it. And, and that's exactly what they did. They invented a throttleable, the first ever throttleable rocket engine. You know the old saying, it's not rocket science. Yeah, the, this bit actually is rocket science, okay? So in its most simple form, um, this is how a rocket engine works. You've got the propellant, the oxidizer, two pumps, the combustion chamber, and the nozzle. So mission planners looked at the whole outline of the mission, and they thought, well, what is the worst thing that could happen? Well, the worst thing that could happen would be two living astronauts stranded on the moon, and the one astronaut in a lunar orbit having to fire up that command module and go home alone, which he was trained to do and which he would have done. Um, but that clearly would have been the worst thing that could have happened. So what they said was, above all, reliability. The ascent engine must be absolutely reliable. So the engineers started to look at this, and they said, well, how do we make this reliable? How do you make a machine reliable? Well, you eliminate moving parts. Yeah. So the first thing they looked at was the, the combustion chamber, the combustion mechanism. And they eliminated that by using hypergolic propellants. Okay? Now, what that means is the propellants ignite on contact. So they used aerosene 50 was the fuel, and nitrogen tetraoxide. There's four molecules of oxygen in that, so it's a very powerful oxidizer. So you no longer lead, need a combustion mechanism. As soon as they touch in the chamber, they effectively explode, and that's your, your rocket blast. So Matthew, what, what else could fail on that rocket? You're an engineer. 
What, what's, what's the next thing you're going to look at that could fail there? What? No? Anybody? The pumps, yeah. What, one or both of the fuel pumps could fail. So how do you eliminate those? Well, again, um, pure genius, the idea they came up with was they pressurized the tanks with an inert gas, namely helium. Yeah? So you pressurize the tanks, you could replace this with a simple tap mechanism, you simply open the taps, tanks are pressurized, propellant comes in, touches, explodes, that's your engine. Ever heard of an engine with four moving parts? That was the ascent stage, four moving parts, uh, pretty incredible. The fuel and oxidizer combination was incredibly corrosive and toxic and effectively it destroyed the engine as soon as it went through. So none of the engines could be test run on, on Earth. So all the engines that lifted the astronauts off the moon, including Apollo 11, was a, a brand new unrun engine. Obviously they they'd, uh, built models of them on, on the ground, but all the engines were effectively brand new. So here's a more detailed um, diagram of it, and again, over here you can see the, uh, the helium tank that's used to, to pressurize, and you've got the oxidizer and uh, the fuel. So again, you see how the, the descent stage is a, a stage all on its own, its own engine, its own fuel, uh, as is the, the ascent stage. Now, a linchpin of the Apollo program was the guidance, navigation, and control system. You've got to get to the moon. Uh, you've got to do orbital rendezvous, and some quite complicated mathematics were required to do that. Uh, and then, of course, you have to get home again. You've got to find the Earth. Now, those calculations were beyond human uh, activity, and you needed a computer. Now, those of you who remember computers from the early 1960s, you know, if your local tax office had a computer, it, it filled an entire room. Yeah? So there had to be a huge project of the miniaturization of electronics and computers to bring the size right down. Um, and you know, of all the benefits, the technical benefits of the Apollo program and society generally, that's probably the, the, the main one, the miniaturization of electronics and, and, uh, and, 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 and computers. Also at that time you saw the emergence of the first microchips. Because again, uh, at that time, computers had to store information on magnetic tapes. The idea of being able to put it onto microchips, now you can miniaturize everything. Because you have to put it here, this is the inside of the lunar module. So you can see that the triangular windows that the astronauts would look out under the controls here. My pointer stopped working. Um, no seats in the lunar module, by the way. There were seats originally, uh, but in the interest of weight saving, they took the seats out. So um, you have to um, fly the uh, lunar module standing up. So yeah, the, the creation of a computer, a powerful enough computer to fit inside the lunar module, uh, an incredible accomplishment in a small number of years. And also one of the reasons why the Americans got so far ahead of the, America, uh, the Russians in this period, because the Russians just couldn't match them in that field of the miniaturization of electronics. So you've now built a computerized complex spacecraft. Um, how do you teach the astronauts to fly it? Well, the answer is you've got to build simulators. Now in the 60s, simulators were pretty basic mechanical devices. So again, there had to be um, huge advances made in the construction and design of uh, simulators to, uh, to train uh, the astronauts. Obviously, lots of knock-on benefits for uh, aviation um, generally. And the astronauts spent days and days and days and days of their lives in these simulators. This is, this is Neil Armstrong in uh, the lunar module simulator, because this was all completely new stuff. And everybody was learning everything from scratch. 
So the next point I'm going to make is uh, telemetry. Um, Morris and I were talking about it earlier. It, it slightly amused me actually back in the 1990s when the Formula One boys started using telemetry and it was like the latest thing. Uh, we can tell the temperature of an engine of a racing car that's two miles away on the other side of the circuit by looking at the telemetry. Sorry, NASA were doing that in the 1960s. Yeah, with a spacecraft that's a quarter of a million miles away in orbit around the moon. Yeah? And when you see pictures of mission control and all these dials, that's what that is. That, that, that is telemetry coming down from, from, the, from the spacecraft. And as you know from the, the dialogue that you've heard, NASA and or the mission control and the, and the astronauts had to work very much in harmony so that telemetry was absolutely um, vital for, for all of that. Just sort of semi-digressing for a moment, th this is how Mission Control Room is right now and it's been recreated for the exact moment when uh, Neil Armstrong first stepped on the moon. So they recreated it from loads of photographs. Uh, so everything, even that half cup of orange and that file and the way that chair is and everything, it's set absolutely as a, as a museum piece, exactly as it was at that moment. And uh, Alice and I were, were over there in uh, May, but we missed seeing that because it, it was all out. It was all the way being refurbished. Uh, it was basically an empty room when we were there, but it's now, um, as you can see, Alice, it's all been put together now. So time doesn't permit me to tell you about all of the technical advances, but there were new alloys invented, new materials, new construction methods, uh, new systems. All had to be invented from scratch um, to make this thing happen. So you're working away on your technology. Um, you also need astronauts to um, fly them, of course. And this was the famous um, first group of American astronauts. This is the Mercury 7. Many of you may have heard of them. Um, you may have read The Right Stuff or seen the film The Right Stuff, great book, great film. That's all about uh, the Mercury 7. Um, and these guys were, they were bigger than rock stars. They were worldwide celebrities overnight. Space was absolutely huge uh, in the 1960s. The best known two are probably um, Alan Shepard up here. He was the first American in space suborbital flight. And then John Glenn, who was the first American to orbit the Earth. And Glenn did three orbits of the Earth. And when he came down, he had this huge ticker, ticker tape parade through New York. You know, it doesn't seem much now, three orbits of the Earth. But you know, it was massive news back then. Now, five of the Mercury 7 are called Scott, Virgil, Gordon, Alan, and John. Now, where else do you associate those names? Good. I was hoping I wasn't going to be the only Thunderbirds fan here tonight. Yeah, what, 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 what an honor um, to have the Thunderbirds named after you, but it gives an idea of what, what that celebrity these guys were. This is obviously Virgil flying out Thunderbird 2. I'm sure all you other Thunderbird fans know that already. Uh, and in case you're wondering, that, that is the original Virgil there, um, Virgil um, Grissom. Now, some of you may know that Jeff Bezos, the billionaire owner of um, Amazon, has his own space program. Uh, he's got two rockets. One is called New Shepard and the other is called New Glenn. Um, so these guys are still being, uh, being honored to this day. So this is the craft they flew, um, the Mercury spacecraft. Again, the Americans used an intercontinental ballistic missile that they had to uh, launch uh, the Mercury craft into orbit. Uh, those missions went uh, essentially uh, correctly. They then progressed on to the Gemini program, and as you can see, two astronauts inside the, the Gemini craft. And the Gemini had to prove in Earth orbit that you could do all the mission plan that we were looking at earlier on. So orbital rendezvous, two vehicles docking in space, spacewalks, 
all that stuff had to be done and uh, practiced to enable the uh, progression onto Apollo. So this is a, a Gemini spacecraft that's been uh, splashed down and as you can see you didn't have a lot of room in there. By the time they got to Apollo the astronauts did have a bit of room to move around but in Gemini you were pretty much just um, stuck in, in, in your seat. And uh, Jim Lovell and Frank Borman, they had to fly Gemini 7. Uh, and it was a long duration mission because planners thought the longest mission to the moon would be 14 days. Could the human body survive in space for 14 days? Nobody knew that. That had never been done. So uh, Jim Lovell and uh, Frank Borman sat in that thing for uh, 14 days. Jim Lovell later described his mission as 14 days in a men's room. Um, you know, with, with another man six inches from you, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was the less than glamorous part of uh, being, uh, being an astronaut. So what about Neil Armstrong? He flew in Gemini 8. Uh, there can be some misunderstandings, particularly this whole thing about him being a civilian. Uh, Neil Armstrong was very much a military man. Um, he was a US naval aviator. He flew 78 missions in the Korean War, flying uh, fast fighter jets off carriers. Uh, he was shot down once and had to, uh, had to bail out. After he left uh, the, the uh, Navy. He then joined Lockheed and became a test pilot for them through this uh, amazing aircraft, uh, the X-15, um, to, to the edge of space. So at that point when he was recruited by NASA, he was a civilian, but as I said, very much in his background and training, he was a, a military man. So Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins, they flew Gemini missions as well, and that uh, propelled them all uh, towards the um, Apollo missions. So this is all drawn to scale. As you can see, everything's drawn, uh, drawn, drawn to scale. The Mercury and Gemini craft are pretty similar, really, in size and everything, but it's an absolute quantum leap in size and complexity uh, up to the, the, the Apollo spacecraft. And of course, um, three astronauts in the command module of, of, of Apollo. Now, when you think about it, in the early to mid-1960s, that was the biggest missile that the, that the Americans had. And in very few years, they conceived, designed, and built um, the Saturn V. Absolutely incredible um, progression in such a short space of time. And if you look right at the top there, you see the little compartment. That's where the lunar module would sit. Then after launch, they would then um, dock in space uh, for the journey um, to, the, uh, to, to the moon. A good way of seeing all of that hardware operating, by the way, is the Apollo 13 movie. Some of you may have seen that, but they do computer animations of all that, that docking of the lunar module and the, uh, the command module. So the Saturn V, the most powerful machine ever built by man, by, uh, by some margin. Um, the guy standing down on the right, some of you may recognize him, that's Werner von Braun, who had designed and built the V2 rocket for the uh, Germans towards the end of the Second World War. He was grabbed along with some of his colleagues by the Americans, and he uh, brought his designs across to America, and was very instrumental in uh, the uh, design of the, uh, the Saturn V. Arguably, the first stage of the Saturn V was like a massively scaled up V2. So it weighs 3,000 tonnes, uh, mainly fuel, of course, 800,000 litres of kerosene. Uh, this is just the first stage. 1.3 million litres of liquid oxygen. And it would reach 5,300 miles an hour in two and a half minutes. Isn't it incredible? You build this huge, complex spacecraft, and its entire operational life is two and a half minutes. And that's it. And it just falls down into the Atlantic, which is where they all, all remain. 
And in the time it takes me to say it burned 13 tons of fuel per second, it would have burned 26 tons of fuel. Yeah? That's like an articulated tanker load in uh, two seconds. Now, if that's your rate of fuel burn, you need some pretty chunky fuel pumps. And to run those, you need a power source. So inside the rocket is a gas turbine, yeah, which produces 53,000 brake horsepower just to run the fuel pumps. Yeah. I mean, this, this is engineering on a, on a vast scale, like I said, the most powerful thing ever built. 7.5 million amp pounds of thrust, or to convert that into units of energy that we're maybe more familiar with, um, 180 million brake horsepower. So the launch of a Saturn V was one, uh, one heck of an event, uh, and nobody who ever witnessed one would, uh, would ever forget it. Uh, the spectators were kept five miles away, and, and even five miles away, when it went up, you would feel your, your, your chest vibrating with, with the noise and the power of this thing uh, taking off. So the early Apollo missions were unmanned. Apollo 7 then was the first manned mission. Just, just the command and service module in uh, Earth orbit. That basically checked out. And the decision was then taken to send Apollo 8 to the moon again, just the command and service module, to go to the moon and to go into orbit around the moon. Now, if you're ever listening to any of the documentaries and you hear the Capcom, the capsule communicator, say to the crew, um, you'll go for TLI. TLI means translunar injection. So that's starting up that J2 engine that we were talking about a few minutes ago. It's a very historic moment because it's the first time human beings have ever left planet Earth and are heading out into space um, to go to the moon. So they, of course, were the first to see um, the moon um, close up. This was around Christmas time, um, 1968, and uh, they radioed back their impressions of seeing uh, the moon uh, close up. They went round the back of the moon and then came up the other side, and then this is the site that they, they saw, um, Earthrise, uh, one of the most famous photographs um, ever taken. The thing about Earthrise was it kind of took everybody by surprise, because everybody was thinking about the moon. We're going to the moon, we're going to be close to the moon, we're going to see the moon. Everybody sort of forgot about the Earth. And of course, this, this incredible moment when they became the first humans to look back across space and see Earth um, floating there in, in, in the blackness of space. And that certainly was a, an awe-inspiring moment for, uh, for the crew. So on to Apollo 9, which was a test of the lunar module. Uh, and this was in Earth orbit. So you see in the background there, you can see the blue of Earth. Obviously, any other photographs from any other mission, you'll only see the moon in the background of uh, the lunar module. So it um, undocked from the command module, flew about 100 miles away around the curvature of the Earth. They then did a simulated ascent from the moon by, by firing the ascent stage, switched on their docking radar, and duly found, docked with the command module, and uh, returned to Earth. Um, quite a hazardous mission, of course, because the lunar module is a pure spacecraft. It's only designed to fly in space. It's got no re-entry capability. So the safe transfer back to the command module, of course, was absolutely um, essential. Apollo 10, um, another fantastic mission. Um, it was a full dress rehearsal for Apollo 11. So they took all the kit to the moon, the command module, service module, and the lunar module. 
um, Commander Tom Stafford here and Gene Cernan, they uh, separated from the command module. They then flew the lunar module down to within about 50,000 feet of the lunar surface, uh, taking photographs and flying the same flight plan that Apollo 11 was going to fly uh, three, three months later, obviously gathering lots of data uh, for, the, for, for that mission. So some of the lunar moons are 10,000 feet high, so they really were quite close, um, but obviously didn't actually uh, land there. So again, that mission um, checked out and they uh, safely uh, returned uh, to Earth. Um, now, the Apollo 10 command module, which you can just see right at the very top of the stack there, um, that is actually in the Science Museum in London, and it's the only significant piece of hardware, of Apollo hardware, outside the United States. So that's worth going to see if you're ever at the Science Museum in London. And if you're tall enough, you can reach up and touch it and say, I've actually I've touched something that's been to the moon. So on to Apollo 11, and this is Eagle photographed from the command module by, by Mike Collins uh, just prior to the descent. Now, just draw your attention to these rods that stick down from the landing legs, and there's a sensor at the bottom of those uh, because they didn't know how dusty it was going to be or what their visibility would be. So there's a sensor down there, and when it touches the ground, touches the moon, a light would come on in the lunar module called contact light. And I mention that because I'll pick that point up um, later on. Now, I'm going to play you an audio file now, which I downloaded from uh, the NASA archives. And it's audio only. You will hear bits and pieces of this when you listen to the, watch the documentaries. Um, but it does, it does sort of disappoint me the way the producers, they all do these things exactly the same way. They, they chop it all up and they abbreviate it and all the rest of it. This is just the last two minutes um, of the uh, landing of, of, of Apollo 11. Um, when you, again, when you watch the documentaries, they always overlay the sound with the, the film. I'm sure everybody has seen the film of Apollo 11 coming down. It was filmed, but it wasn't televised. So I think those documentaries create the impression that Mission Control were watching it live. They weren't. Uh, they only saw that film when the astronauts um, came back. So um, all, all they had was uh, the audio. So yeah, the, the, the edits annoy me, but what annoys me even more than that is the really irritating, dramatic music that all these producers have to play. I don't know if anybody shares that view, yeah? But for some reason, they think that they have to put, and all these producers do exactly the same thing, and they have to put all this dramatic music over the top. To me, the drama is in their voices and their communications and what they're doing. That's, that's the real drama of it. So just to fill you in on this, and again, if you've watched uh, some of the documentaries, you're probably aware of this, the initial landing point was unsuitable. Uh, it was rocky, and Neil Armstrong had to fly further downrange, um, and they, they were overdue. So throughout this two minutes, they're overdue. They're in the red zone. They should have been down. So a couple of things to listen out for in the audio. Um, first of all, super cool Buzz Aldrin. You know, there he is. He's reading out all the landing coordinates as, as, they, as they go down, or the descent coordinates. Um, so cool, you know, just like he's in the simulator back on Earth, instead of doing this incredible thing and flying down to the moon. You'll then hear Charlie Duke saying 60 seconds. That means they've got 60 seconds of fuel left. You'll hear Buzz Aldrin saying, picking up some dust. So they're now really close, but they're still not down. You'll then hear Charlie Duke saying, 30 seconds, still not down. They've got 30 seconds of fuel. And when they get to zero, they either land or they abort the mission. You'll then hear Buzz Aldrin saying, contact light. So contrary to some of the things that I read, the first words ever spoken by a human being on another world were contact light. Um, and after that, and the next bit, again, it 
disappoints me the producers always cut this, but I think it's incredibly powerful. Like the absolute professionals they are, all they do is they sit and they read down through the engine sh shutdown checklist, which goes on for several seconds. Nearly all Buzz Aldrin, if you listen very carefully, just in the background you'll hear um, Neil Armstrong um, responding to one of the shutdown commands, um, and then uh, the famous transmission from Charlie Duke, we copy you down, Eagle. So sorry for the big build-up to that, but uh, there's, a, there's a lot in this, and I wanted to make sure that you, uh, you listen to it all. So let's get this working. That's it, Pato, out there. 50 down at two and a half. 19 forward. So this is how it was in real time in mission control. Altitude, velocity, light. Three and a half down. 220 feet. 13 forward. 11 forward, coming down nicely. 200 feet. Four and a half down. Five and a half down. 160 feet. Six and a half down. Five and a half down. Nine forward. Good. 20 feet. 100 feet, three and a half down, nine forward. Five percent. How many bites? Hey, 75 feet. That's looking good, down a half. Six forward. 60 seconds. Lights on. Six. Down two and a half. down two and a half, picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down, Big shadow. Four forward, four forward, drift into the right a little. Down a half. 30 seconds. Forward just, Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control both auto, decent engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy it down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twain. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're looking good here. Okay, we're going to be busy for a minute. So typical Neil Armstrong understatement, yeah, we're going to be busy for a minute. Um, so hope you enjoy that and you agree with me that the atmosphere and the power of those words is a lot better um, when, you, when you hear it without the uh, dramatic music over the top of it. So uh, the moonwalk duly took place, uh, and you'll note that they landed in a pretty featureless area, which I'll come back to um, later on and um, took, took about two and a half hours on the moon. Um, there are very few photographs of Neil Armstrong for the simple reason that he had the camera most of the time. So most of the photographs are of Buzz Aldrin, but it's a very famous photograph of uh, Neil Armstrong, the photographer, reflected there in uh, the visor of uh, Buzz Aldrin. So Neil did slightly fluff his lines. I don't know if you're, you're aware of that. He was supposed to say, it's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Instead of that, he said, one small step for man. Man and mankind effectively means the same thing. So he did slightly fluff his lines, but we'll, we'll forgive him for that. He did everything else brilliantly. 
so after two and a half hours, uh, again, another well-known picture of uh, Armstrong then back in the lunar module with his, his helmet off. Uh, very telling picture, I think. If you look at his eyes, see the exhaustion in his eyes. Um, he'd been on the go for nearly 20 hours straight. The whole stress of the landing and the getting suited up and the spacewalk and all the rest of it. So he's exhausted, um, but at the same time, you can see the elation in his face with this, uh, this incredible thing that he's just accomplished. Forty years later, I don't think it was particularly planned that way, but as it happened exactly 40 years later, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in 2009 uh, took a series of uh, close-up photographs of the Moon. And so the, the descent stage of Eagle is still up there, obviously, uh, along with the uh, experiments that you can see that they laid out. And you can even see their footprints still there. Um, obviously, still there 50 years later. There's no air on the Moon, uh, and therefore nothing to uh, disturb um, the footprints. They're all, all still up there. So this is a machine you may not have seen before. This was the Soviet lander, designed only for one cosmonaut. Um, the whole sort of electronic miniaturization thing, they couldn't really get to grips with that. They flew this unmanned in Earth orbit a few times, but they couldn't get their big moon rocket to work. It blew up all the time. So they um, quietly binned their lunar program and then spent decades pretending that they never had a lunar lander and that they never actually really wanted to go to the moon. So, so to this day, only the Americans have sent astronauts out of Earth orbit. All, all other nations have put astronauts, the Chinese and the Russians, only other been um, Earth orbital stuff. So NASA, in fact, gave themselves two chances of landing on the moon before the end of the decade. Um, this is Apollo 12, which uh, landed in uh, November 1969. Um, probably nobody here has ever heard of Pete Conrad. But if um, Apollo 11 had failed, and of course, as we heard earlier on, it came within 17 seconds of failing. They had 17 seconds of fuel left when they landed, um, and they would have to press the abort button and fire the ascent stage. Um, Pete Conrad, of course, would be very famous because he would have been um, the first man on the moon instead of the third. Um, so this is a robotic craft called a surveyor that the Americans had sent up some years earlier, um, part of the mission plan. You can see what an accurate landing it was as well. Yeah, they landed really close to it. And part of their mission was to um, remove some bits from the lander and, and take it back to Earth so that scientists could analyze the effect of space on metal because it had been sitting there for a, for a few years. Um, there was a brief flurry of excitement when they got that back to Earth because they found microbes on it. But they then later realized that the uh, craft had not been properly sterilized on Earth before it went. So these, in fact, were microbes that made the journey to the moon and came back down again. I think sterilization is of a higher um, standard these days. So Apollo 13, not going to say much about that. I'm sure you've all seen the movie. A successful failure. Didn't manage the moon landing because of a failure in the craft, but they got the astronauts back. Apollo 14 was a successful mission, and it was commanded by um, Alan Shepard, who we mentioned earlier. He was the only one of the Mercury 7 who actually made it all the way to the moon. He, he commanded uh, Apollo 14. But uh, things got really interesting in Apollo 15, 16, and 17, because NASA became uh, much more ambitious um, in those missions. Again, I remarked on how level everything was in the Apollo 11, Apollo 12 photographs. Uh, Apollo 15's motto was to the mountains of the moon. And as you can see, that's very much the, the landscape that they landed in. One of my, my favorite Apollo photographs, this is uh, uh, Jim Irwin, uh, the lunar module pilot from uh, Apollo 15. 
So I'm just going to scroll through, because again, I mean, obviously Apollo 11 was fantastic, it was the first landing, but it does mean that it gets a lot of the attention, and sometimes people don't see the photographs that were taken by the later astronauts, so I'm just going to scroll through um, two or three photographs and, and get, give you an impression of what some of the things that they saw. These uh, amazing landscapes, this, uh, this huge rock probably blasted out of a, a volcano on the moon um, millions of years ago. So I think Buzz Aldrin said it was quite dull on the moon in some ways, but again, that's because he landed in a very flat plane. As I say, the later astronauts had very um, interesting terrain to, uh, to explore. And of course, doing lots of geology, gathering up samples from uh, uh, ancient volcanoes and impact craters and, and bringing uh, lots and lots of uh, uh, samples back home. So dramatic crater dropping off here and the mountains behind. So you'll notice the way the the horizon comes up quickly. The, the moon is a quarter of the size of the Earth. It's one-sixth the gravity, but it's a quarter of the size. So you get quite a, quite a short horizon. It kind of drops off a lot more quickly than you would expect um, on, uh, or than happens on the, on the Earth. So the lunar rover, um, what an incredible vehicle. Um, we've had talks here at Brooklyn's about electric vehicles and all the latest thing. Yeah, decades ago, the NASA had a fully electric vehicle um, driving around on the moon. Um, Four-wheel drive, four-wheel steer, weighed only 200 kilos on Earth, obviously a sixth of that on uh, the moon. Designed to work only on the moon, it would have collapsed under the weight of two astronauts um, on, the, on, on, on the Earth, uh, made out of aluminium. Um, as you, whoops, you see from this photograph, it had its own um, communications and navigation systems independent um, of, the, uh, of the lunar module. Absolutely um, amazing vehicle. There's even like an engineering story behind the, uh, the, the wheels. They're made out of this wire mesh and huge amount of effort went into all of that. Um, not tires, obviously, to avoid the risk of puncture. Very little suspension on it, so there's a certain amount of give and springiness in the wheels to, to bring in a, a certain amount of uh, suspension movement to the, uh, to the lunar module. Um, you, you know those kids' toys called Transformers? Familiar with that? Transformers, where you, you fold it all up into a little sort of box thing and then you unfold it all out and it tur turns into a toy. Well, the lunar module was effectively a transformer because to get it onto the lunar, or the, um, the lunar rover rather, to get it onto the lunar module, they had to fold it all up just like a transformer and then um, unfold it uh, when they uh, got, got onto the lunar surface. Um, the most expensive wheeled vehicle ever built. Uh, in 1970, they cost $38 million, uh, which in today's money is $450 million, so about $150 million each. So if you're ever in a pub quiz and you're asked what's the most expensive vehicle, it's not a Bugatti or anything like that, it's uh, undoubtedly uh, the uh, lunar rover. Okay, so quite a sad day, really. 14th of December, 1972. Uh, this is the liftoff of Apollo 17 um, from uh, the moon. And it was filmed on the lunar rover. There's a camera, and I just think this is amazing technology for 1972 as well. The camera is remote controlled by a guy in Houston, yeah? So he's trained, these are obviously stills from the film. He's trained the camera on uh, the ascent stage taking off and he pans upwards from Earth and actually follows it up as it takes off. And that took this uh, a film of these uh, stills were then um, taken from. And so since that date, since December 1972, no, no human being has been outside of Earth orbit. They were, they were the last three um, astronauts um, to do that. 
So again, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, nearly 40 years later, um, took film or, uh, of, the, of their site. So that, if you go back to here, that's the, that's the descent stage there. I'm sitting on the moon, and there it is there. And then this is LRV-3, Lunar Rover Vehicle 3. So it's sitting there with that camera um, pointing um, across, uh, filming that scene. And you can see all the um, rover tracks and the, uh, and the footprints, again, all still um, up there from the uh, Apollo um, 17 mission. So the, th the three lunar rovers are all still sitting up there, of course. Um, obviously, after nearly, 40 year, nearly 50 years, I should say, the uh, batteries are going to be pretty flat. Um, but I, I like to think that some future astronaut will go up there with a set of jump leads and um, <laughs> try, to, uh, try, try, try to get them going again. So there were six successful landings on the moon, and this is where Apollo 11 landed. So if you, you're looking at, was anybody looking at the eclipse of the moon on, on Tuesday night? You got a really, really good view of the Sea of Tranquility, actually. So the way to find it is you've got this very circular crater just here, and just sort of track that down across the Sea of Tranquility. It's more or less on the equator they landed, so it's just, just here on this spot on the very edge of the Sea of Tranquility is where Apollo 11 went down. And, uh, Landing in these upper regions was a more demanding flight plan. It's easier to land on the, the equator, which is why Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 um, went down there. So there were um, six missions in all. Twelve Americans walked on the moon, and four of them are still alive. And uh, Alice here has met one of them recently, um, Dave Scott. Now, I don't give any credence to conspiracy theories, but they do crop up annoyingly often. Um, so I have, I'm just going to devote five minutes quickly to showing you that with um, 30 seconds of science, any of these ridiculous conspiracy theories can be uh, completely um, discarded. Um, n n no stars in the sky. Heard that one? Yeah? Well, look at the, no, no, why, why are there no stars in the sky on the Apollo photographs? Pardon? Essentially, yes. How many stars in the sky can you see on Earth on a bright, sunny day? None, obviously. The sun washes them out. This is a bright, sunny day. The sky is black because there's no atmosphere on the moon, yeah? It's always black. So the stars are obviously there, but the sun is too strong to see them. And they're washed out because of the exposure of the photograph. So like I say, 30 seconds and you demolish that one. This is a slightly more interesting one. Um, no blast crater underneath the lander, or minimal blast crater anyway. Um, so here I think the conspiracy theorists, I think they confuse a takeoff with a landing. On a takeoff, it's all fire and fury, as we saw with the Saturn V. On a landing, remember this is a relatively light vehicle, it's one-sixth of the G, so a small amount of thrust takes keeps you up there. So the astronaut comes down, throttle back, throttle back, throttle back, contact light, engine stop, land. So at the actual moment of landing, the engine is either not running at all or, or completely stopped. Also, no atmosphere on the moon, so the blast dissipates very quickly from the nozzle on Earth. You've got atmospheric pressure, it tends to hold it in as well. So for those reasons, um, no blast crater um, underneath the lander. Now have a look at this. If any of you know what this is? This photograph taken in this year, 2019. This is the Chinese lander, which they, as you can see from the flag there, first robotic craft to soft land on the far side of the moon. So a terrific um, technical um, accomplishment by the Chinese. Um, in order to keep communications, they had to put a relay satellite um, around the moon. And guess what? No stars in the sky. No blast crater underneath the lander. Looks like the Chinese must have faked it as well. 
in fact, if you put these two photographs side by side, um, I think you will agree with me that the, the similarity, look at the soil, the sort of the look and feel and texture of the lunar soil, the, the way the footpad is sitting in the lunar soil, uh, re really incredibly similar. The way the light's shining on the craft, the way the shadows are cast, everything just looks un un unbelievably similar. Uh, even the, the, in, in, the, in the distance, the moon, slightly different exposure on, on this camera here, slightly lighter exposure, but fundamentally um, the same. And even the, the, the lunar background um, all um, looks very much the same. So if NASA never went to the moon and faked that photograph, and that's the genuine photograph, they did a pretty good job, you have to say. Um, yeah, th this is a little, little rover uh, about the size of a microwave. You can see it comes down the, the tracks, it comes around and it takes a photograph of the, uh, of the uh, mothership. But from an engineering point of view, this point really fascinates me. Look, look, look at the landing legs and the architecture of the landing legs on the, on the lunar module, yeah? Now, now, humanity has had 50 years to improve that, yeah? And, and look, look, look at the Chinese one that went up this year. Yeah, it's almost identical. Just goes to show just how right NASA and their various um, subcontractors really got things uh, back then. So the flag, that one doesn't even take 30 seconds. There's a rod that runs through the top of the flag um, to hold it up. Obviously, there's no atmosphere, so anytime you see a flag flapping or moving, it's, the astronaut has recently touched it or has disturbed the ground. Um, that's why the flag appears. And there's no atmosphere, so if he walks away and leaves that in that position, it stays in that position because there's no wind to change it. So that's why it looks, if you go back to this photograph, that's why it sort of vaguely looks as if it's flying because that's the way they left it when they last touched it. Whoops. So, slightly more complex one, um, secondary light source. Yeah, this is another one they harp on about. Um, sun is over here, so you can see the shadow coming down here. So how come you can see Buzz Aldrin? This was taken by Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin coming down the ladder. How come you can see him quite clearly there? Surely he should be in shadow. Um, and that, then the, the theory, conspiracy theorists say secondary light source. Well, there is more than one light source, um, but it's not a studio light. Um, first of all, the suit is luminous, so it reflects 90% of the light that hits it. So if you've got the sun up in the sky here, what have you got up in the sky over here? The, the, the Earth, yeah? The Earth, which is four times bigger than the sun. It's shining light down. Plus, the moon itself reflects up light. That's how you see the moon from Earth. That's what it's doing. It's reflecting the sun's light. So it reflects light up onto the scene. And can anybody be really clever and work out what the third light source is? No, not a flash. That's interesting. No, no, not a flash. Well, well, the suit. You see, it's Neil Armstrong himself. He, he's standing out here. He's in full sunlight. The suit that he's wearing reflects 90% of the light. It hits it. So he's a light source. Yeah. So that's why um, Neil, uh, Neil Armstrong effectively lights up and Buzz Aldrin can be very uh, clearly seen. So as I say, all this stuff about the uh, photographs you can easily demolish. But there's also external evidence. So you know, why did the Americans go to the moon, the Cold War, um, to beat the Russians? Who tracked them all the way to the moon? Listened to all their communications? Were in a position to verify everything that happened or, or didn't happen? Uh, the, the Russians. Uh, this is the front page of Pravda, the Soviet newspaper, 21st of July 1969. Uh, and in case, in case your Russian is a bit rusty, uh, what that says is a uh, first mission to land on the moon. So you won't find any Russians that uh, think that it didn't happen. The final one I'm going to mention is the moon rock. They brought back nearly 400 kilos of moon rock, um, which is geologically different to earth rock. 
and that was distributed all the way around the world to hundreds of geologists of all countries and all political persuasions. Um, so not a single geologist in 50 years has ever said, I don't think this rock um, actually um, came um, from the moon. So there you go. If you're not, next time you're down the pub and somebody comes up and says, well, it never really happened, um, I've given you plenty of ammunition there, hopefully, to be able to uh, shoot, shoot them down and uh, demolish any of those, uh, those arguments. Um, so the next photograph is completely genuine as well. This isn't fake either. I actually did go to the moon. I was a bit cold up there with no space suit. And I had my crewmate with me. So I'm, I'm not the only space nut in the family, I'm Al Alice is as well. This was actually in the San Diego Air and Space Museum. And it's actually a children's bouncy castle. We had to sort of chuck the kids off um, to, uh, to get the photographs taken. So what, why? You know, what, why is it that people want to try to denigrate and attack uh, the, the lunar missions? Uh, it, it baffles me. But here's, a, here's the thoughts of a, of a philosopher um, on, on the subject. Pseudoscience and anti-rationalism are widespread in the global culture of the 21st century. The Apollo missions were incredible accomplishments, perhaps the greatest in the history of the human species. I certainly think they were. The Apollo program dramatically illustrated the previously unimaginable things that humans can do when reason, science, creativity, cooperation, ambition and bravado are applied to the pursuit of genuine achievement and enlightenment. Claiming Apollo was a conspiracy is not merely an attack on NASA, it's an attack on human reason, achievement and aspiration. I think that's very well put. So for further reading, um, obviously, I've read dozens of space books over the years. There's a couple of my favourites. Um, Gene Cernan on the right-hand side there, uh, The Last Man on the Moon. Cernan falls into that very, very small subset of human beings who've been to the moon twice, because he flew in Apollo 10. Remember, we said the dress rehearsal mission in orbit around the moon, and then he landed on the moon in, uh, on Apollo 17. Now, we had an interesting talk here at Brooklands a few weeks ago about the land speed record, oh, that is the Earth land speed record, yeah? Gene Cernan actually holds the lunar land speed record. Uh, the lunar rover was designed to go at about eight miles an hour uh, with uh, two up uh, astronauts and kit. Uh, towards the end of the mission, Cernan was always a bit game. He got the other guy off and all the equipment off and took it for a blast, and he got it up to 11.2 miles an hour. <laughs> and that, that is the official lunar land speed record for the time being. On the left, um, Gene Krantz, famous uh, flight director, very interesting to get the uh, mission controls point, point of view. He became quite famous in the Apollo 13 um, mission. And, you know, when you read the astronaut stories, you're struck by the, their skill and their courage and their great adventure. You know, when you read the stories of the guys on the ground, you know, it's the work. Oh my goodness, the work that those guys put in 70, 80, 90 hour weeks for years on end um, to put this thing uh, in, in, into place. Uh, they just really worked so hard. So um, Gene Cernan uh, is now dead, uh, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, but um, Gene Krantz is still um, alive and well. And uh, Alice here was lucky enough to meet him in uh, San Diego a few uh, months ago at, uh, at an Apollo 9 event. She said he was a very nice chap. So what is the uh, legacy of Apollo? Well, we talked about the, the various technical advances, the, the scientific knowledge, 
Um, on Apollo 15, they brought back a rock that became known as the Genesis rock, and it was proved to be over four billion years old. So understanding of the solar system uh, the, and, and the Earth um, really developed from then. This is the, the only whole Earth view that any Apollo mission um, took, again taken by, by Apollo 17 actually. Um, all of the other photographs, all of it, a, a degree of shadow within it. And, you know, Friends of the Earth was formed in 1969. And, you know, that's not a coincidence because this time, this, this occasion of human beings being able to look back across space and see the, the fragility of Earth floating in space was certainly very um, inspirational uh, for the, uh, the, the environmental movement as well. So just to finish, uh, we'll hear again from the same philosopher that we heard from a moment ago and specifically going back again to uh, Apollo 11. Though it was only for a fragment in time, NASA and Apollo 11 did the impossible. They united the human species in the celebration of a human accomplishment, the only time that has happened ever. They also inspired all of humanity to momentarily set aside their daily narcissism, consumerism and tribal warfare, to look up at the stars in awe and wonder and reflect upon their past origins and future destiny. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry Sherrard, thank you very much indeed. If there are questions, one there, just so hold on. Thank you for an absolutely wonderful lecture, absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, you showed how the uh, transformer, you called it, of the uh, rover was put. What I still can't understand on such a weight critical uh, lunar yeah. module, how that was actually packaged into the lunar module and how they got it out of it onto the lunar surface. Yeah, I mean, time doesn't permit to show, show all that there's various diagrams of how they pulled it down. There were lanyards and all the rest of it. It's a fair point. They, they effectively had over-engineered over the Saturn V. So they, they designed it with higher payload missions further down the line and the development of the Saturn V later on allowed that. It was only 200 kilos, of course. So it wasn't a massive amount of weight, but they had always designed the missions with higher payloads further, further, into, the, uh, further into the program why they were able to do it. But yeah, it's quite a, an amazing process when you see them bringing it down and pulling out the wheels and snapping it all into place. It's just amazing. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, and one more question maybe, yeah, and then we'll break and then um, come back in 10 minutes. There you go. Hello, thank you again for tonight's lecture. Um, I'm asking about Apollo 10. Yeah. I remember as a little girl watching this I loved it all. I just yeah. followed it all from Mercury all the way through. Uh-huh. Right. Um, Brilliant. Apollo 10, was there any possibility that that could have landed, even as an emergency, and then taken off, even if they didn't get out and walk around? So I know they wouldn't have had the kit for that. It was, but it was, was, there, was there a possibility they could have landed and just taken off again? No, there wasn't, actually. It was, it was too heavy for, for, for that, and that's the reason why the, the Apollo 10 came out, um, lunar module was not capable of, of, of a landing, in fact, and that there was a, a weight-saving process on, going on and the Apollo 11 command module, Apollo um, Eagle, was, 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 was lighter and it was able to land. And also, um, the, the crew always joked about this, that um, in order to prevent them from doing a sort of accidental landing, it wasn't fully fueled. <laughs> Thank they, you, they, I, I did wonder that at the time. NASA did that deliberately, it didn't give us enough petrol so we couldn't get down to them in. I think that probably tells the answer. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we'll take our intermission now.